Hello everyone and welcome to Discussing Trek. Hi, I'm your host Clarence and today we are reviewing Star Trek Prodigy Season 1, Episode 7, First Contact. Thank you for subscribing. What we do here on this podcast is review each and every episode of Star Trek in somewhat excessive detail. In addition to talking all things Trek, and like always, I'm joined by my fellow co-host slash Trekkies, starting with none other than Cal Jones. How are you doing, man? You know what? I'm doing well, and I hope you are the same. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Can't wait to dice up this episode and talk about it. Also on the podcast, we have Jonathan Shorts. How you doing, man? I am good, man. I am freezing cold oh. <laughs> out here in my remote recording studio. But talking trick always warms the heart, so... Oh, man. No. (laughs) We're going to get right into it. Star Trek Prodigy First Contact was written by Deandra Pendleton Thompson, while the episode was directed by Steve Ann and Song Shin. When a mentor from Dow's past persuades him to use their Federation cover for personal gain, they quickly discover Starfleet has protocols for a reason. Spoilers. Red alert. All hands stand the battle station. I'll give you the right. You cannot destroy an idea. At ease before you sprain something. Like always, we go to Cal Jones for the beats of the episode. Sometimes serious, sometimes comedic. You never know. Cal Jones, what do you have for us today, man? So, as we continue our conversations regarding Trek, I have come to the conclusion due to the overall concept and construction of most of the stories in which they appear, that I confirm my general dislike for the Ferengi. In this episode alone, I completely condemn the conniving conduct (laughs) by the devious convict due to her concocting a scheme that made Dal and his contemporaries look poorly in the eyes of hologram Janeway. Of this, I trust we can be of consensus. <laughs> wow. I see what you did there. Thank you, sir. Kyle going crazy with the cons on this one. Wow. I just love the way they played with the name for uh, contact. And I was like, I'm just going to go with it. But you missed the most obvious one, Cal. Tact. Wow, well done, sir. I think we can end the podcast now and go home. Cal is pretty much. (laughs) And in conclusion, (laughs) now I'm on a roll. Done with that. What are your high level thoughts of the episode? Absolutely love the episode. I agree with Cal's beats, man. It's the Ferengi. Just, I mean, they do a great job. It's a great character built throughout Trek. And they just, ah, uh, it's just irritating, but irritatingly good stuff. Just, just, just good stuff all the way around. Yeah. Yeah. And Kyle, do you have any additional thoughts before I get mine, man? No, the only, well, the, I say no. And then I start talking. The only thing I will add to the general consensus is I don't like the Ferengi, but I like that I don't like the Ferengi because I think they are written well in the fact that I don't like them. So that's my additional thoughts. My thoughts on this episode, I'm not quite sure I loved it. I felt like it was good, 
I felt like uh, the Ferengi in this episode, Nandi, was well done, beautifully illustrated. I think the art of the character was just great in this episode. And we got just a smidget more of what the mystery might be behind the pro star. Just a smidget, not much. But I'm kind of anxious to get along with the story and get more of what what the protostar's mission was and what happened to his crew. But I do think it was a good, good Ferengi story. We got plenty of the rules of acquisition quoted in this episode as well. So I, I, I think I, I didn't love it, but I liked it. I liked it. So with that, we're going to get right into some of the details of the episode. The crew of the USS Protostar finally discovers transporters. John, do we take too long to get here? Yes. <laughs> I felt like I was watching an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, you know, when they were first when, you know, obviously the transporters were very new technology and they were kind of scared to use them. So you rarely see them used in Enterprise. And I just kind of felt like, and you know, if you, you go through and you watch Trek from the original series on up, like you just get to a point where it's just like, automatic like the transporters like that's just your expectation like in in these episodes and even on episodes of enterprise you know there's just a lot of times where i think to myself if they had just used a transporter (laughs) we would have saved an episode like (laughs) it wouldn't even been a problem but the transporters uh i was glad to see them used but like why did it take so long so jonathan let me ask you a question based on you referencing enterprise are you basically trying to say that it took them a long road to get to that <laughs> From point? From here to there? <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of feel like that's what you're saying. That is exactly the what I'm saying, Kyle. Exactly. It was okay, a cool. long road. I wanted to make sure here. I was reading you right. So cool. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, definitely. If you look at some of the earlier episodes, you would think, oh, if they would just utilize the transporter, maybe we could have got out of this sticky situation a little bit easier, but they definitely presented it here as a teachable moment. And Cal, I want to ask you a little bit about Murph, or as you call Smurf. (laughs) We beam him into space, in the vacuum of space in this episode. And I'm just thinking, are they setting us, do you think, let me ask you, do you think they're setting us up for something big with Murph somewhere down the line? Absolutely, 100%. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because they're presenting him as indestructible with the, the torpedoes, and then we beam him into space, he still survives. It's just like they're kind of hinting at he may be important down the line in some shape, form, or fashion, no pun intended. Well, we said this last week, well, I said this last week, that I think Murph, there's more to Murph than we know. Like, he's going to be a big deal here sooner or later, and I think they're working up to that. And he's, I mean, slowly working to be one of my favorite characters. (laughs) And see, I am so glad, Jonathan, you mentioned that because I did not recall what, or actually, I did not recall who said it. So it was you that brought up the fact that Murph may be, like you just said, a lot more. And I think it was when we saw Odo that made you think of that, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, they're, they're hinting on something with Murph. And because otherwise it's just a waste. Like I think, I think somebody said last week, it was just kind of the, he may be put there just to appease the younger audience. Yeah. But I, I, 
if that's so, it was a waste of character. You know what I mean? Like I, we could have done that with Rock Talk. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? But, but there's a reason Murph is here and it's going to play a big role. Yeah. Either Murph is a somehow cool wild card hiding in plain sight, or he's the Jar Jar Binks of this series. And let's hope he's not Jar Jar. Listen, no, um, okay. we're not irritated by him. We like him. That means that he is not Jar Jar. Jar Jar for me is like the theme song to Enterprise. Like, I feel like I'm the only person that loves Jar Jar. Like, I love Jar Jar. That was my favorite in this episode. No. <laughs> I can see it now. There's going to be an episode of Star Wars where Jar Jar comes out to the end to the theme song of Enterprise. Oh, man. That is the most hated thing in the making. <laughs> Written by Chris Chibnall. Oh, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Written by Chris Chibnall. Directed by Zack Snyder. Oh, geez. You're oh. just pulling out all the stops. <laughs> Jonathan <Jeez>. started it. <laughs> so the protostar gets a distress call from someone saying that their warp core is compromised. And that they have sick orphans on board. <laughs> of course, Adele sees right through it, right through this room. Who wouldn't? Because he knows the con woman. Enter Damon Nandy. First impressions of Nandy. Cal, what, what do you think of this Ferengi? Okay, so first impressions before I knew any of the things that she was going to do. My first thought was, okay. You don't know what you're going to do until you put yourself in the captain's seat and in that situation, et cetera, and so forth. However, if anyone saw that person with the quote unquote baby and think that this is not a setup, I'm thinking Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs <laughs> and the old witch with the evil apple. I mean, come on now. I mean, she reeked completely of evil. Oh, man. So I want to ask John the same question. But first, I want to say, from what we know of the Ferengi, shouldn't Janeway have told the crew to be a bit more careful? I mean, was it the fact that Dal knew this Ferengi uh, made it okay for her to not be like, okay, we know the Ferengi are kind of shady, you know? And and I don't want to... And, and maybe it's bad for me to say that just because it's a Ferengi, because... I don't want to be, you know, xenophobic toward the race of uh, the species of, of Ferengi, but still. <laughs> yes, I did expect that. I, I, And, you know, even if even if you were to think, you know, it's OK, it's it's a friend like we just know Federation. I mean, the Federation knows that the Ferengi, even when they're friends, you still have to watch them like and there's a rule of acquisition. It's says something about friendship like take advantage of your friends like it, it's it's just known like it, and the best way to deal with the Ferengi is to deal with them on their level like you just automatically assume that they're up to a con and you deal with them that way even if you're expecting them to be friendly like even if it's a friendly Ferengi you still have to deal with them like a Ferengi so I expected that and and it's not that you know I get Janeway being okay to let them meet with this Ferengi because I mean in the Federation you just like I said you know it like they are kind of the antagonist but not really yeah you know what I mean so it's kind of like yeah we just use them as a tool I don't know like not necessarily use them but like you just you just know right 
like you know a knife is sharp, so you handle it like a sharp knife. Mm. What did you think of Nande in particular? Uh, not, so I got a problem. Uh-oh. Well, she had clothes on? Was that your problem? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody mentioned anything about this being a problem. Like, I, and I get, I get it. They don't know Ferengi, but I would have thought, though, with like new, if he was raised by Nandi, like he would have known that that was a problem to start with. Well, number one. Did, number did, two, well, women. Well, well, well didn't, didn't at the end of DS9, they had a bunch of women's rights things, Ferengi well, women's rights? Yes, yeah. the Ferengi Bill of Opportunities and 2374. Good job, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, even throughout DS9, it still wasn't, like, solved. But that was always an overarching problem with women. Like, they cannot wear clothes and they should not be earning profit. Two things that Nundi is doing. But she's a Damon, a commander rank, right? Uh, I don't know the Damon rank. Uh, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm looking it up here. Damon of the Ferengi was a command rank used by the Ferengi Alliance. Interesting. And I guess, well, and they do call, if you have, if a Ferengi has a ship, they are then a Damon. Oh, well, that leads into, and I know we want to get in more of the actual episode, but that leads me into thinking timelines and how is Nande how did she get to the Delta Quadrant, I guess? I mean, because she sold, we learn later that she sold down into slavery, which, bad Ferengi. Bad, bad Ferengi. <laughs> but, Again, expect it. But how did she get to the Delta Quadrant? Or she knew of Tars Lamora, I'm guessing? That's kind of what I got during that showdown scene at the end of the episode, that she actually knew of Tars Lamora. So I'm a little confused on locations there and how is it possible for her to get from the gamma quadrant to the delta maybe maybe tarzan Moore is on the edge of the delta quadrant i don't know i just would like to know more about that well we do know there was a worm no that was an enterprise from yeah. the alpha quadrant to the to the delta uh no alpha to gamma um but there's i mean i know it's a wormhole in ds9 from alpha to gamma but there was a tng episode where they found this wormhole and the Ferengi found it as well. And they kind of did a joint venture through this wormhole to the other side. But then they realized the wormhole was, was it like, stable? Un- yeah, it wasn't stable. And but they refused to come back. But I'm assuming he she got there through some kind of random wormhole she found. Yeah. Either that or somebody has like a very fast ship that we don't know about, which is possible, I guess. Because, again, when you talk about location and spacing, like she receives at the end of the episode, she receives a transmission from um, the Diviner looking for the Protostar. So maybe they're just at the edge of the Delta Quadrant or somewhere closer than, than we would think. Right. So can we talk about Janeway for a moment, specifically on the comment that you guys made earlier about why didn't she stop them? So can we? Yeah. Because oh, I have a question. Well, I think my thoughts on that is that she was so preoccupied with her, you know, her original crew. As we see later, as she's doing the scrubbing of the video, I think she was so preoccupied with trying to find out why or what happened to her crew that she really didn't pay as much attention to this very critical first contact mission and we talked about the prime directive as well before she sends them down 
But I think she was so preoccupied that she just didn't pay that much attention to it. Good. I'm glad you said that, because here comes my question. How much Janeway, Catherine Janeway, Captain Admiral Catherine Janeway, is hologram Janeway? Mm. John? I, I, that's a good question. Like, I, I kind of take it to another step. Like, I feel like hologram Janeway is hiding something. She knows something, but she's not sure of what she knows. But what she thinks she knows is something that she doesn't want them to know. So she welcomed the distraction from the Ferengi. Mm. Hmm. Now, let me take it in maybe just a little bit of a different angle, even though I love what you just said. What if Catherine J- or hologram Janeway starts out nothing more than a hologram that is based on the characteristics of personality of Janeway with a little bit of, you know, her history, et cetera, and so forth. But it has begun to evolve, as we've seen the doctor on Voyager do. And I say that because we see that where she is like really interested in Janeway. And I also say that in last week, I noticed, and I noticed it again this week, it was almost a feel to me as if it kind of was like a shock when she saw Janeway last time, more so necessarily than Chakotay. It was almost like I'm seeing myself. And that was kind of how I took that. Hmm. And maybe what she's looking at on this recording is the actual Janeway. Which is why she's being blessed with the hesitations coming from, because she's thinking, well, my program wasn't online for Captain Chicote. Well, we know she doesn't remember. And the only reason I would really push back against that is that I did notice I actually stopped the the frame and and clipped it. Chicote is wearing a different uniform than the hologram Janeway. Uh, So if, if they had the same uniform, I would probably say yes. But I don't know. But why would why would the hologram if that if Chakotay's uniform is the uniform that they're using, then the hologram would also have that uniform. It wouldn't be a hard program to write. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And the fact that, you know, they see something poking through this door and she waits till they're all off the ship before she zooms in on their frame to see who it is. Well, that that's Dreadnought, right? Yeah. And she she acts like she doesn't know who Dritnock is? I was a little confused on that as well. Hmm. And we obviously obviously see Dritnock on the top of the ship when they're first fleeing from first fleeing from Tars Lamora. So I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> confused hmm. a bit. <laughs> so getting back to the, the ordeal of running into Damon Nande, I do like how when they actually did use the transporter to go over to her ship, the damsel. I loved how Jacob Pod was a little like he pulled like a a, a bones or, you know, it shows a bit of a fear of transporters when they beamed aboard the ship. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> and interestingly enough, there were a few interesting items in the uh, cargo bay. Well, interesting, I guess that's subjective, but uh, a fertility t- totem from Ryza was there and also a Vulcan Lerpa. Uh, so I thought both of those items were, were pretty cool. Now, let me ask this. Did any of you guys watch Firefly? Of course. Did it jump out at you that Dal used to sleep in the engine room of the damsel? And does that remind you of anything from Firefly? Oh, you know, that did not jump out at me at the time. 
But yeah, that was remind. What was her name? Kaylee. Kaylee. Yeah, I was gonna say Haley. Complete with the hammock too. Yeah. They had the hammock as well. So and it was the same color, the same shade of color in the engine room. So I was like, that, that is pretty cool. Yeah, that was really freaking awesome. <laughs> but I think even stranger, we got this cloaking device, and even stranger, a Klingon cloaking device powered by Chimerium. Why would Nandi have a Klingon cloaking device first of all? And why would she have one that's powered by Chimerium, which is a a crystal, a power source, which we established only in this series, only on Tars Lamora? Hmm. Does that make much sense? Plot point. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I wondered the same, but I, it was just cool seeing the. So, you know, there was an episode of DS9 where Quark and uh, Rom had to steal the cloaking device from the Defiant. To go to take to the mirror universe, it was just I thought it was pretty cool. It was almost the same exact design, kinda. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's pretty cool. <laughs> now I do know that the introduction of Chimerium into Star Trek was actually done in a novel, and I forget by which novelist, but that same novelist works on Prodigy, so maybe he's just trying to interject his novel tidbit into proper right. canon, which I think is cool. I'm trying to think. I've heard. And we so we have not heard that in Trek anywhere else. I don't like think so. Trek I think, proper. I think only in the novels so far. I don't know why that just sounds familiar outside of Prodigy. Who knows? So in exchange for the cloak, uh, Nande asks Dal to go with her to a certain system in order to retrieve this Rimalite crystal from a non-spacefaring species in order to pay a hefty debt. Again, we probably knew some some nanigans were going on with this. I want to talk a little bit about Dow's and Nandi's relationship. And I've mentioned it before, but were we kind of surprised, even with this being Ferengi, were we surprised that she actually put him into slavery? Because I feel like even for Ferengi, that's a lot. <laughs> no, I expected that. Like, first off, like when when he said she raised him, like that was my first thought. Like, well, that's how he ended up there. And you could kind of see it from when they hugged and she said, he said, I hadn't seen you in like, I forgot which one said two years. Like you could see it in her face. Like, and I, that I would expect nothing less from Ferengi. See, I didn't expect it, but I fall into the category of I was not shocked. So maybe I did subconsciously, you know, suspect it, but I totally wasn't shocked. Yeah. It's just funny how on this supposed kid show, like the main characters have tragic backgrounds, <laughs> very <laughs> tragic backgrounds. And listen, so rule of acquisition number six, never allow family to stand in the way of opportunity. Oh, so, boy. I mean, you, you kind of expect that. We're 21, n- never place friendship before profit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Now, I did really like the aliens in this episode, even though we got very little of them. But we get these acoustic terra molding, terraforming aliens. I thought the concept of that was really cool. And of course, somehow, I don't know why, but they take the crew to their power source, which is this crystal room. And of course, you know, um, Nandi is going to do what she came to do. Again, I think Janeway should have been a little more forward thinking that they wouldn't be going down there to offer a, what was it, a, Klingon plate. A Ferengi <laughs> spit pan. Yes. Uh. <laughs> How gross is that? 
<laughs> yes. So the um, the aliens loved the idea, loved the way it looked, made me think that Marvel's Sandman should be so much more powerful, uh, considering the fact of what you can do with sand. That said, the aliens themselves reminded me of a combination of two things we've seen in Doctor Who. The idea of using the crystals to make this sound that they hear, this music, this song that they hear, reminds me of the Ood and their ability to make mental music that they make and can broadcast. On the flip of that, the way that the crystals looked reminded me of an episode called Journey to the Center of the TARDIS, where we get inside the TARDIS and we see these light spheres kind of thing. Yeah, in the computer core. Yes. Oh, yeah, that is exactly like that. And didn't they steal one of them on that episode? Yes, and similarly, (laughs) something bad happened there. So. Oh, that's cool. Okay, I'm going to have to send John a screenshot of that. This is a pretty cool episode, (laughs) actually. Oh, good tie-in, Kyle. But yeah, for me, I really did like these aliens. And you mentioned the song. I thought it was just so fitting of how Nandi is coming there to get a crystal. And all they offer her is a song. Very beautiful song, by the way. Better than that trash they played last week on the holodeck. That was not trash. (laughs) (laughs) But this beautiful song. And I just thought it was very fitting. And they made the statement, all crystals matter, which I guess was kind of weird to me. But... (laughs) But overall, I did like this this rendezvous and this aliens. And obviously, uh, Nandi was going to steal the the freaking crystal. What did you think of the showdown between Nandi and Dal there at the end? Great, it was great. Like uh, I would never expect some uh, such a dramatic scene in a supposedly children's show, and it went down exactly how I would expect that type of situation to go down. Like I think Dal could have easily won that battle but he was torn i mean i mean just think about having to go through having to do that with your parent you know what i mean you're not going to fight as hard you're going to give up you're going to question whether or not that person is right like and you've seen all of those thoughts in his head in that moment and that that was so good so so good yeah and and kyle what did you think about that elegant solution that i never saw coming but again, teachable moment with transporters being in this episode, he just had this. And to me, it's the first time I've seen him th- thinking three steps of a- ahead. Yes. Just a great way to resolve the matter. And, you know, of course, Nandi's going to be pissed off, but he was able to do it and not be too confrontational to, like you just said, John, someone who did kind of bring a love in some way. Right. See what he did in this episode. Mm- served several different purposes for me. Number one, it showed that he is not just some hot-headed kid. and Or maybe he is a hot-headed kid, but it shows that he has potential. Growth. 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 Yeah, he can grow. He can learn. He's He has a lot more potential than what people in his past have given him credit for. But the other thing that I really liked about this is, you know, we one of our complaints in the previous episode was how he treated, and I can't think of her name right now, Gwen? but the Diviners, yes, how he treated her. If you look at that and compare it 
to this moment that they have after he makes this decision. I think you needed to have him do what he did in the last episode for this mm. exchange to make, not necessarily make sense, but resonate a little better. Does yeah. that make sense? Yes. No, no, totally, man. When we see that they both have these, like I said before, tragic kind of upbringings and we get to see his side of, you know, of parentage. I thought it was also interesting how he kind of aggrandized his upbringing, even though it probably wasn't that great. Uh, I forgot what they called it, but the window of possibility, I think what, what they may have called it. Yeah, I don't remember. But it's just like this little window in the engine room. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's so sad. You know, it's great how they are. You know, when they first got on the protostar, like they just, you know, they all kind of assumed the position of captain. Uh, and it was not because he felt like he should be or anybody else felt, felt like he should be. That's just what it was. But it's just great watching how he's naturally becoming like I don't see anybody else's, as Kyle says, potential like his potential is I don't see that same potential in anybody else. And that potential is what would make him a captain. Yeah. Like and you see that in this, like he's slowly rising to the top of the totem pole, basically. I mean, he he's going to be the leader. And you see that in these little decisions he made throughout this episode. Yeah. And we talk about it all the time on what makes a great captain. You know, a little bit rogue, a little bit troublemaker. Right. <laughs> he kind of has all those elements. One other quick thing before we give our ratings. Pickpock, the floating artificial life form orb. I thought it was kind of cool how his name is kind of like Pick Pockets. Is kind of <laughs> what I got out of it. And he's like leading yeah. Nandi to different treasures and heists and things like that. So I thought it was pretty cool. I don't know if we've seen many other floating artificial life form or orbs in Star Trek. I know we probably have, but I thought this one was, was pretty yeah. cool. And let me point out. So I, I and another reason why I appreciate this show so much. I've been recently watching, going back and watching the classic Knight Rider <laughs> oh, episodes. Really? Yeah. And it's just so, you know, now, I mean, TV, I mean, and writing and script writing and all that has gotten very good as of late and you sit down and watch your show and it pulls you in and there's twists and turns and there's an ending and not really an ending and a, like a cliffhanger and it makes it great. Yeah. But sometimes you go back and watch something like Knight Rider and every episode there's a problem, but it always is tied off simply with a nice bow. Like it's not a like, he solves the problem. It may not make much sense how he did it. And, you know, you see the solution and you're like, yeah, this got to be a TV show. It wouldn't happen in real life. But it just feels good to sit down and watch a show. And it just kind of ends, you know, like they solve the problem. And it's yeah. a nice solution, a nice, yeah. simple solution. And I say all that leading up to the actual problem I had with this show, with this episode. And it's not a big problem. It's a tech problem with Trick. And, and so... The solution of getting the crystal back, like he stuck the com badge on it and he beamed it away from the ship. Like it's yeah. not it shouldn't have been possible for him to transport. And maybe technology has gone further than that. But I mean, even in Discovery, we hadn't really seen transporters go that far, like be able to beam something off of a moving ship that's moving away from you. And I'm assuming it was pretty far already. I think that's possible. I think that's been ha doesn't happen before. I'm it sure. has not, not, not. No. Only if they had the shields up, and we don't know if she had the shields up or not. 
but I think it's possible, especially with the enhance. I mean, the the cum pads pretty much act like a, a transporter enhancer. Well, I mean, the cum badge, yeah, but still, that range, usually you're, you're at the tip of the range. Like, when they're in orbit of a planet, they can transport down to a planet. Like, and still, that's an issue. Like, if there's a little bit of a disturbance, you have to use the pattern enhancers. But let's just assume that Nandi's ship is warp capable. Yeah, true. And let's assume, I mean, we're assuming she's trying to get away from them. So she went out as fast as possible. And we know how fast warp travel is. So in the time lapsed between that time of dog getting on the ship and them transporting it, like she should have been at least a few light years away. I have not seen an instance where a transporter could transport something light years away on a moving target. But did she leave? Yeah. I don't. Did she, she did leave? leave. Well, I'm, I'm not going to hold. I I, I kind of agree with. I'm guess I'm on Kyle's side on this. I don't. I'm not going to hold that against the show. I'm not either. I've, like I said, that and that won't affect my rating. Yeah. I'm just saying I had a problem with that. But I also know because of their intention of this show, like they, it's a kid show. We can't get bogged down the rabbit hole of tech. Yeah. Like they had to make a s- elegant solution. It had to be simple and tied off, and it did exactly that. And I, I, th- I had a problem with it, but also kudos to the writers for taking that risk of saying, you know what, screw the physics of it. Like, this is just how it's going to solve and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the transporter being such a teachable moment in this episode. Right. It was very I thought it was very elegant to cap off the episode that way. So I, I, I really enjoyed it. I liked it. But with that, uh, if no one has anything else, let's go ahead and get ratings for the episode. Kyle Jones, what did you rate this episode, sir? You know what? I think I'm going to give it, I think I'm going to give it a solid four. It is not something that completely, you know, blew me away. But I think for all the things we've been discussing and for the character progression, easily a four. And for that matter, I'm going to be right there with you, sir. Solid four. No complaints. To me, I want more. I really want more of this mystery, which they're doling out to us very slowly. I don't know how many episodes we have left in this season, but I want to get a little bit more of what happened to Chakotay and the crew. But I am loving how we're getting, and I think you guys really emphasize it in this review, more character development for, for Dahl. And, I, I, and I, I'm really, really enjoying that. Jonathan, what is your rating for the episode? Uh, man, I, I, I keep writing high. Um, four point six I, I i mean i want to say five. i don't speak your heart man speak your heart this the transporter thing was a problem but not not a problem that made me dislike the show at all any it's just something i noticed and but it wasn't done like as a mistake like oh they forgot to address this like they purposely set it up that way and that was great yeah i mean other than that i do not have a issue with this episode the only reason I don't want to go five, because what if we have a better episode? <laughs> Duche. Well, with that, guys, if you have any feedback on the episode, you could send that in to fans at discussingtrek.com or hit us up on any and all social medias. And now it's time for Trek Trivia. Trek Trivia is where we ask a burning Trek related question. Jonathan, what do you have for us this week, sir? Ah, so we had a Ferengi appear in Prodigy for the first time. I've happened to watch a couple of Ferengi episodes on other series. So my trick trivia is going to be Ferengi focused. 
and a little bit of history. So as mentioned in this episode, there is something called rules of acquisition. Uh, You may know it if you don't know the rules of acquisition are basically a set of rules written by the Ferengi to kind of supervise their lives, basically, which are lives or business. Their conduct. (laughs) Their conduct. Yes. So the Ferengi actually describe it as unabridged and fully annotated with 47 commentaries, 900 major and minor judgments and 10,000 considered opinions. There is a rule for every conceivable situation. There is. <laughs> and when no appropriate rule applies, make one up. <laughs> oh, God. So it was it has been stated in a couple of different places that there are two hundred and eighty five actual rules of acquisition. Most of these rules of acquisition were actually written by Ira Stephen Bear, who was on over the DS9 series that we all know and love. Now, my trick trivia question is how many of the 285 rules of acquisition were actually quoted in Trek? I would say probably maybe 50. I'm going to say lower than that. I'm going to say 25. Uh, So I'll give you the answer on this. Uh, We're not going to make them wait for it. So there has actually been, you're good at Clarence, 59 stated rules throughout Trek. Hmm. But there's a caveat to that. There has also been 13 unofficial stated rules. The reason they say they're unofficial, because they either were not given an exact number or they were said by Ferengi, this should be or this is one of the rules that I've added myself somewhere along those lines. But there's actually been 59 rules stated in Star Trek. Most of those were written by Ira Stephen Bear. That is freaking cool. Well, let me ask you this. Are all of the 285 actually written somewhere we can seek out and read? No, they are really. There is a book out there and I hadn't done much research on it. And there's actually a rules of acquisition book, but I still don't know if they've actually been written out. Yeah. Where this official, huh? Right. Cool. Well, somebody should write that book if they haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to know why you can't find one of these books? Because if you had the actual book, they would actually have to follow the rules of acquisition (laughs) instead of making them up as they go. Oh, but they're so much fun. They are. If you're not on the receiving end of it, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for that, John. And with that, we're going to end off the episode. Again, as always, if you want to send in feedback, you can do that by sending email to fans at DiscussingTrek.com. Or hitting us up at Discussing Trek on any and all social media. Until next time, guys, live long and prosper. Thanks for listening to the Discussing Trek podcast. For more information, go to DiscussingTrek.com slash subscribe.
Hey guys, it's Sergio from Reality Breached. We've got a bunch of different podcasts over on our network at realitybreached.com, and one of my favorites is Shellheads, a TMNT podcast. Shellheads is a deep dive into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in ways you've never heard before. From the early comic days to the current Nick show, nothing is off limits. Jeff from the Warp Zone Arcade joins me to binge watch and power read through a comprehensive library of TMNT fandom. Check Shellheads out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more details, visit realitybreached.com. You've been listening to the Discussing Network. Find out more at discussingnetwork.com.